Nana nana, nana 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 nana, nana nana, nana nana. You're listening to How It's Written with Patrick E. McLean. This episode, Batman. Explaining how Batman is written is a huge task. I mean, there's just simply so much Batman. Since the character's creation in 1939, every conceivable tone has been struck with these stories. And if every twist or variation hasn't been tried, well, then almost all of them have. I mean, you can read a Batman story in an alternate DC universe where Bruce Wayne marries Selina Kyle and has a child. This field of story has been plowed. In comics, film, television, action figures, t-shirts, Batman everywhere. It would take a lifetime to do a comprehensive survey. And I think it would be a life, well, wasted. Because the fact is, most of everything isn't very good. Most Batman comics or movies, while they're fun and they're fine, they certainly aren't sublime. So the reason I'm exploring Batman right now is that I'm currently writing a Batman story of a kind. And to do that, I want to understand the character better. I'm writing a series called How to Succeed in Evil. About an evil efficiency consultant for supervillains. It uses superhero tropes in the same way that Douglas Adams uses science fiction tropes and Terry Pratchett uses fantasy tropes. It's satire. In the latest series of books, the long-term antagonist for my consultant is a superhero called The Lynx. This current run of story started as I tried to answer the question, what would I do with Batman? What's the Batman story that hasn't been told? Eh, good luck. Uh, what would happen if Batman was real? I mean, like, totally real. And what's a consequence of Batman being real that nobody has ever considered? How to Succeed in Evil works like this. You put a superhero trope next to a real person, and then it's funny. It creates instant satire. Like Bruce Wayne. He's got billions, but if he really wants to help people, he should do it at scale, not by pounding muggers in an alley. He should devote his time to the Wayne Foundation. And really, if he believes in what he's doing, he'll want to turn Wayne Enterprises into an engine that will generate so much money that he can use it to fund the Foundation. So in my idea, uh, Batman, the Lynx, is inherently irresponsible. He's a trust fund kid who is defrauding his shareholders so he can play vigilante. I mean, he's a dilettante. And from that, you can know he's probably not very good at business or at fighting crime. He wants to do the right thing, he just doesn't know how. And that's funny, and or sad, depending on how you play it. So for me, the questions to ask of Batman are threefold. One, why has Batman lasted? What makes this character have such staying power? Is it luck? I mean, was the character just created at the right time? Certainly some of that is true, but there are things about the story and the character that would be useful to understand if you want to make new stories that you hope will last. And, and I, I do. Number two, how does this engine of story work? I mean, there are so many Batman stories, so many great characters. What is it about this particular wellspring that makes it so productive? And is there anything I can steal to become more productive myself? And three, what is a Batman story at its absolute best? How and why does it work? So here's my plan of attack. I'm going to place Batman in the pulp tradition, and then I'm going to talk about the major kinds of Batman stories. 
and why, when they are great, they are great. And then I'm going to analyze uh, the film a little bit, the film The Dark Knight and the comics that led up to it. So where does Batman come from? One of the most important insights I have for anyone about story, or even art in general, is that everything was influenced by something else. There is no new thing under the sun, as the saying goes, which logically can't be correct, but new ideas are very, very, very rare. So if you see something that you think is without precedent, turns out there's a part you missed. And the part you might miss about Batman, that he is straight up a pulp character. The pulp era in which he was created was this vast rolling machine that turned out story after story after story, almost all of them repackaged and produced with a speed that modern writers can't seem to match, even though uh, they have computers, right? And all they had back then was mechanical typewriters. Like there was a guy named Lester Dent who would keep an extra giant royal mechanical typewriter beside his desk because he wrote so fast he would break one of those cast iron typewriters and he didn't want to slow down so he would just slide that typewriter off the desk and plop the new one down and keep going, filling ream after ream of paper. So these pulp characters are like the guys that, that Bob Kane and Bill Finger used as inspiration. The number one inspiration for Batman is Zorro. Bob Kane said so himself. You can see it in the art and in the classic origin story, young Bruce Wayne and his parents are coming out of a screening of The Mask of Zorro when his parents are killed in a mugging. For me, Batman also has elements of the shadow. Lamont Cranston, rich playboy by day, turns into the shadow who turns invisible and scares the crap out of criminals while solving mysteries and righting wrongs. There are, of course, others, but it's all a melange. From the word go, Batman comes right out of this world of ridiculous characters. Well, ridiculous now, if you go back and read them. The other interesting thing to note is that Batman is not ridiculous. Well, not at the start. And not exactly funny, either. From the word go, Batman is a tragedy. And the Joker is a horrific monster. That panel of a recently orphaned Bruce Wayne crying and dedicating his life to fighting crime in the earliest origin story is harrowing. Sure, I didn't completely get this the first time I read it, but when you go back and look at it, all the pieces are there. And this is the primary difference. Batman has internal stakes right from the beginning. All of these other pulp adventurers, they're doing something because it's fun. They're, they're gentlemen adventurers. Maybe they're bored or because they're doing it because it's right in the abstract sense. Bruce Wayne dons cape and cowl not only for justice, but to fix what's broken inside him. Batman is, first and foremost, a response to trauma. So how do Batman stories work? Batman never changes. Oh, I know, Robin got killed, and then he wasn't, and then Robin changed, and Nightwing, and blah, 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 blah. But in terms of real interior character change, it seems to me that only two Batman stories involve the character changing in a significant way. The origin story and the death story. For me, in every great Batman story, the villain is a manifestation of Batman's internal struggle. And maybe every good action story works like this. Maybe a hero's struggle is always his or her consciousness against inner forces. 
these elements of psychology and neurology and instinct that we aren't consciously aware of, that we must overcome to be who we want or who we need to be. Take, for example, an alcoholic. In one sense, there's nothing easier than not being an alcoholic. It's literally the cessation of an activity. It would seem to require no effort at all. But we are not in charge of ourselves, exactly, and the struggles to overcome addiction, or anything else, are titanic. But they are internal. And it's very difficult to understand anything in abstract terms, especially the deep interior life of a human being. And so we make these things concrete in character and action. To understand and reason about these psychological struggles, our ancestors developed myths. I believe they used the oldest and most eternal categories known to them, things like mother, night, father, ocean, light, darkness, dragon, fire, ice, not just as things in themselves, but to try and understand what was going on inside them and how people should act in the world. In a real sense, the battle against any monster is smaller and secondary to the battle against the instinct for self-preservation within. But since we can't symbolize that inner battle very well in a story, we have heroes slay dragons. Batman doesn't have dragons. I mean, maybe Killer Croc. But Batman has characters that are his externalized personality traits or other competing possible responses to trauma. So many versions of the Joker are valid and understandable responses to tragedy. We live in a cruel, nihilistic world. Nothing matters. There is no God. It's all a joke. The mob has plans. The cops have plans. Gordon's got plans. You know, they're schemers. Schemers trying to control their little worlds. I'm not a schemer. I try to show the schemers how pathetic their attempts to control things really are. So, when I say, uh, come here, when I say that you and your girlfriend was nothing personal, you'll know that I'm telling the truth. Bruce Wayne slash Batman is the opposite of this response. Bruce, through grief and the power of his will, forges himself into an instrument as an attempt to restore justice and make the world a better place. And every Batman character is like this. Oh, they might have started out as kind of silly, but as writers and artists plumbed the depths of these characters and tried to make better and better work, it all converges on the same idea. Batman strikes terror into the hearts of evildoers and uses fear as a tool. Who else uses fear as a tool? The Scarecrow. Batman has become part monster. Do you know who else is also part monster? Killer Croc. Man Bat. Because where's the line? What happens when the monster takes over? When do you go too far? Batman wants justice. You know who else wants justice? Ra's al Ghul. When does the vigilante go too far? Batman, you think you had it hard? You think you're strong and scary and know what loss and pain is? You think you can stay forever young and be the most super of super predators? Meet Bane in The Dark Knight Rises. Now, I'm not going to argue that all Batman characters do this perfectly or that every Batman story works this way, but the ones that work the best certainly seem to work this way. A philosophical or psychological question is personified in a villain. 
Even the penguin, as nutty as that character might seem, is a fundamental response to trauma. He's also an orphan, his mother killed by a cruel disease. So he turns to crime. Because why not? The world is cruel and meaningless. A contrast to Batman turning to justice because the world is cruel and meaningless. For me, the apotheosis of Batman is found in two graphic novels, both by Frank Miller, Batman Year One and Batman The Dark Knight Returns. If you don't know, the first one is an origin story and the second one is an ending story. And it's no exaggeration to say these books, along with Watchmen, The Killing Joke, V for Vendetta, all three of those by Alan Moore, by the way, saved the dying medium of comics in the West. Time Magazine picked Watchmen as one of the best novels of the 20th century. And I don't think that's exactly right, but I agree with the point that they were trying to make. All of these works are of stupendous quality, and not to read them at this point is to be provincial in your own culture. All of these books are, in a sense that the word is not often used, canon. Even if they weren't great in themselves, they would be necessary to interact with and understand because of the effect that they've had, for better or for worse, upon the larger culture. If you want to write anything other than literary fiction, you should definitely read them. All that being said, I have come to a strange conclusion. With one exception, Batman stories at their absolute best are stories about somebody else, probably the Joker. Or maybe the way to say that is the best stories with Batman in them are about the Joker. You can even make a good case that Batman Year One would more accurately be titled Lieutenant Gordon Year One. The weight of the story, the biggest change, is in Gordon. And this is a point that's kind of hard to see because of the way they name movies and plaster Batman all over everything. For example, Christopher Nolan's wonderful film The Dark Knight. Who's the prime actor in the movie? The Joker. He initiates all the action. And he's trying to prove that ultimately everybody is awful and nothing means anything. You want to know how I got these scars? The answer is different every time because the truth doesn't matter. He's trying to destroy Batman from the inside out, destroy him as an idea, bring him to the belief that there is no justice. And that's why Harvey Dent's story makes sense in this movie. It's to provide a contrast. Here's someone like Bruce Wayne, better than Bruce Wayne, and he's powerless against the Joker's basic argument. The criminals are even powerless against the Joker. And the crazy thing about that movie and its ending is that the Joker wins. Nothing means anything. The lies win. Because sometimes truth isn't good enough. Sometimes people deserve more. Because sometimes the truth isn't good enough. Sometimes people deserve more. Sometimes people deserve to have their faith rewarded. Now just take that out of context for a second. Put those words in a news director's mouth. Put those words into the mouth of a wife or a husband who has cheated. Honey, I'm going to reward your faith in me by lying. That's some evil shit right there. And even if the music and the cool art direction made those words sound good to you, made them sound unquestionably heroic at the time, like, I, I get it, I'm right there with you, 
But that's not flattering for either of us, right? That admission. And the only reason that you didn't realize this and hate it immediately, I think, is because of this scene. Give it to me. You can tell him I took it by force. Give it to me. And I'll do what you should have did ten minutes ago. There are many, many great things about The Dark Knight as a movie. The pacing and the scenes are so tight. The dialogue is brilliant. I mean, just think about how many great lines you know from this movie. I'm gonna make this pencil disappear. It's, it's gone. Some men just wanna watch the world burn. There's a lot of potential for aggressive expansion. So which of you fine gentlemen would like to join our team? Oh, there's only one spot open right now, so we're gonna have tryouts. Make it fast. Sergio Romano, Silver. Oh, I am. I'm only burning my half. All you care about is money. This town deserves a better class of criminal. And I'm gonna give it to him. I suppose you're gonna lock me up as well. As your accomplice. Accomplice? I'm gonna tell them the whole thing was your idea. The Christopher Nolan movies are so good, we even overlook the absurdity of the whole Batman word-gargling thing, right? It's so stupid. Wars, Rachel. But it works. I think The Dark Knight comes as close to being a great movie as a superhero film can without actually being a great movie. For some reason, it just doesn't hang together for me. It's... Three magnificent set pieces, really. The bank robbery at the beginning, the sequence where the truck flips, and you know, with the cable and the bat cycle, and the choice on the two ferries. And the rest of it is just sort of woven together well. But it doesn't feel like a unified whole to me. But the level of craft. And it's funny, right? It's funny for being so intense in places. There are so many great, great things of moments, right? Great moments. And really those moments are singular experiences on that emotional roller coaster of a good story. They're the reason why we go to big Hollywood movies. We want those moments. But they're not the reason why a story lingers with us, stays in our heart, or changes us. And for me, The Dark Knight doesn't do that. But the story that inspired it does. I'm talking about the 1986 graphic novel, The Dark Knight Returns. It's a lot of things that make this great, but it's the story of how an old hero dies, which is part of the hero's journey that we seem to have forgotten in modern times, but it's a huge part of it. See, if you're going to be a hero, you don't actually get to lay that burden down when you want to. In Beowulf, as an old man, Beowulf has to answer the call again and die fighting a dragon. 
Hell, King Arthur dies fighting Mordred, but he doesn't even get to stay dead. As the legend goes, he's just sleeping, waiting for the time that he's needed again. We see this old story play out when an old boxer comes out of retirement to fight a young one. He's too old, but he's the champ, and he has to answer the call one last time. You can hear it in these lines of Tennyson. Death closes all, but something ere the end. Some work of noble note may yet be done, not unbecoming men who strove with gods. Though much is taken, much abides. And though we are not now that strength, which in old days moved heaven and earth, that which we are, we are. One equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. The Dark Knight hews to that form. And maybe The Dark Knight, the film, doesn't work because it's not really cast in one of those great forms of story. That's the kind of question that I don't know how to answer just yet. And if I'd waited until I'd figured it out, I never would have finished this video. I'll tell you my hunch, though. If you want to innovate with story form, odds are it's probably not going to work out. It's like a song or a symphony. You have to make a great one within the form. So what I can tell you about the Dark Knight Returns graphic novel is that it's been looted by every creator since it came out. The Dark Knight Returns contains the movies The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises, Batman vs. Superman, the first page alone was the inspiration for that 20-minute racetrack scene in Iron Man 2. Frank Miller forever changed Batman. Every Batman after Miller is the gritty, scary, possessed, gravelly-voiced Dark Knight. And as if that's not enough, he also did the same thing with Daredevil. Every Daredevil after Frank Miller is, in a sense, Miller's Daredevil. On top of all that, The Dark Knight Returns was the first comic I know of to genuinely gender swap a character. Robin is a young girl, and she is hands down, no questions asked, my favorite, and I also think the most heroic Robin there is. And I've never even really liked Robin. I mean, Robin's always struck me as kind of stupid, like the boy hostage, a plot device, maybe something to get young children to like the story. But Carrie Kelly, she's a brilliant character. So for my money, if you want Batman at his best, it's Batman The Dark Knight Returns. In closing, I should also say that revisiting Batman after all this time gave me strange new insights. One is, and there's no way around this, is that Batman is himself a criminal. He's a vigilante, a man who takes the law into his own hands. All superheroes are, in a sense, but explicitly Batman. And the crazy thing is how long this character ran on. All comics, really, with a nod and a wink. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's okay because he's a good vigilante. Or it's fine because he's rich and he's trying to do the right thing. That's really thin. But everybody was and everybody kind of is okay with it. But here's the question. What gives you the right? What's the difference between you and me? I'm not wearing hockey pants. 
And I think the reason we're okay with thin justifications like that is we know it's going to give us a great story. Or perhaps we understand, on some barely conscious level, that the logic of the story works as competing villains, competing perspectives on responses to trauma. And I'm sorry if all this seems vague. I'm, I'm at the limit of my understanding here. But what I take away from this is twofold. One, realism, in any sense, is a bad quality by which to judge a story. I mean, if you look at any story that people love, it's utterly implausible at some point and on some level. Even, and perhaps especially, non-fiction stories. The longer the odds, the more unlikely the outcome, the more we like it. And number two, we don't need much of an explanation for something absurd. We don't even need a good explanation to suspend disbelief. But we do need an explanation. Maybe all a reader or viewer needs is an acknowledgement that some stretch of genre or realism is being hand-waved away. And we're good. We're in on it. We're complicit. So to wrap it all up, question number one, why has Batman lasted? Some of it was certainly lucky timing. But the part that wasn't is because Batman has internal stakes built in. Tragedy drives the character, even when he's ridiculous. Number two, how does a Batman story work? Every character is a response to trauma, an aspect of Batman's psyche that has been externalized. Now, there's more to it than that, but I think that's what drives Batman's rogues gallery and why the stories keep on coming. And number three, what is a Batman story at its absolute best? Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns.